and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Good morning, everyone. If you can, find a seat. It's good to see everyone greeting each other. It's good to see you all here this morning. I want to kind of prepare you, maybe get your seatbelts on a little bit, but we're about to examine a portion of scripture that has managed to divide believers, um, that's been used to exhaust believers in the sense of thinking that they've exceeded the limits of God's grace and has evoked, invoked fear that somehow the evil one can remove your decision to follow Christ. So on the outset this morning, you know, I, I just want to let you know that we're going to be dividing in the different kinds of development, spiritual development, and I want you to know that no one can take that away from you, all right? And the passage today is going to give us a very stern warning, and it's going to help us look at, at where we're at in our relationship with Christ, and I just want to really encourage you to, to look at yourself and look at this passage and examine yourself. And I'm hoping you find yourself in it. Now, as Kurt talked about last week, he said there were 16 different viewpoints on this passage that we we're going to be talking about. And uh, as Kurt and I were talking, I realized there was one more, mine. And what that means is that there's probably several different perspectives on this passage. And so I want to really encourage you to understand um, through listening to the Holy Spirit in your life, what this word is saying to you. Um, I want you to kind of get in touch with that. Our studies of the high priest in the order of Melchizedek means that we cannot determine and judge how our high priest, the author and perfecter of our faith, should act when it may suggest a detour from our previously held beliefs. We can't separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, and who here is worthy to open up the scroll? None of us. However, many have distracted themselves in terms of the question, can a believer lose his salvation? And in doing so, they've missed the warnings of the passage this morning. So I'm going to avoid this and encourage us to focus on the intention of the warning in Hebrews 6, simply to recognize stagnation in our lives and others, and then move forward. We look at different things and we kind of see some alarming trends globally in the church. Attendance is on the decline. Recent studies show that most people identify themselves as none in terms of faith. Now that is in contradiction to the 1990 study done by the Barna Group where 83% of people identified themselves as Christians. My visit to the Russian Orthodox Church in Sitka, Alaska, which was um, Russia, America at one time, found they had 30 Russian believer, believers attend a church where it used to be the majority of the city. The priest of the congregation spoke with me and he said, the majority of the once faithful believers no longer associated themselves with the church. 
And it was very clear to say, it's not that they just didn't attend. They didn't want to associate with it. They did not want to be named among them. My visit to churches in Ireland and England found very few congregants. 20 in a church that once held 1,000 in Ireland and about 100 in another church that once held 1,000 members in England, a very prominent or used to be prominent church. The declining numbers that identified with their Christian faith was shocking. And the church elder at the Church of England told me, the church is dead in Europe. American trends have followed the same kind of pattern. Having lower attendance, dwindling numbers, fewer people identifying themselves as followers of Christ. And although it's progressed through several revival type periods, it's only been compromised, so it seems, by the cancel and woke cultures. If you know what's been going on in this past week, you're probably shocked to see some of the trends of these major religious leaders and what they were trying to teach. Many have exchanged their once outwardly professed truth for a whisper of belief accompanied by disavowed morality. One can only look at this and say, why? What is the reason for the decline? Was it doctrine? Well, probably not, because even churches with very faithful teachers and good doctrine have experienced this decline. Was it church people? This is one I like. One study said that the reason why the decline was happening was because of church people, because church people are mean. <laughs> no. Why I say that is because my look at those churches that are very extroverted and very friendly and reaching out and very nice experienced the same decline. Was it marketing? In 1990s, a purpose-driven church purported that, you know, we needed more marketing approaches to getting people to identify with the church. You may have remembered that. And one of those things was branding. And as churches tried to get more and more in tune with branding, some of them got weird. And they actually distanced themselves from their culture more than making it more relevant. I collected some church signs. Yeah. Now, one of the big, <laughs> one of the big, the big lessons here is don't let people with grammatical difficulties make church signs. One of my favorite is, do you know what hell is? Come hear our preacher. Are you a fan of stranger things? Try our church potluck. <laughs> How about some other ones? Was it lack of focus on social needs? If, I'm sorry, this is not fast. There we go. Was it lack of focus on social needs? You know, the social gospel. Well, if this was true, the world would recognize the global efforts of faith-based groups to address things like starvation, the desperate needs of war refugees, human trafficking, discrimination, and the medical needs all across the world of people that desperately need assistance. But they don't. Was it academic accomplishment? The American Atheist Association has been purporting that only people of lower academic levels still believe in God. However, the reality is that many physicians, scientists, Scholars assert their belief in God. They believe in Jesus. You don't ever hear that. One of the, my favorites is a guy by the name of Dr. Ben Carson, who was the head of neurosurgery at John Hopkins 
And he has this to say about his faith and his scholarship. I realized early in my career that it wasn't me. I said, Lord, you be the neurosurgeon and I'll be the hands. And when I came to that realization, amazing things started to happen. But it's not just him, there's other faith-based scientists. Um, Dr. Jing Kang, electrical engineering and computer science professor at MIT. She began an atheist, but turned to follow Christ in her graduate school, her higher education. The research, she says, is only a platform for me to do God's work, she says. His creation, the way he made this world, is very interesting. It's amazing, really. She shares her faith with students and faculty making it her mission to spread the gospel in the academic world. Another example, Dr. Russell Coburn. Now, not only has he received several awards, but he points out in his field of nanotech, God got there first. Nature is full of nanotechnology. Everything from the smallest molecules to supermassive black holes is a part of God's creative activity. And then, Dr. Dean Hastings. He's the head of Department of Aeronautics and Astronomics at MIT. And he states, there is a God who created the universe and he's not an impersonal God. He has declared himself as a loving God who seeks a relationship with us. And there are people in this congregation who are physicians, engineers, scholars, who also assert their belief in God. The American atheists are wrong to astute that people who have higher academic standing don't believe in God anymore. That cannot be the reason for the decline. Well, the scripture gives us some insight of things we can expect. Jesus said that the, the road that leads to destruction is wide and many follow it. He also later in the parable of the sower talks about how the seed can fall into the ground and begin to take root, but it stops. It falls on rock. And Hebrews begins to identify what I call the failure to thrive Christian, the Christian with an eating disorder. We'll begin our study in Hebrews 5 and 6, 1 through 3, to give us a brief introduction and context so we're going to kind of do a little review here um, so that we can prepare for the context of our passage today. This will help us understand this incredible stern warning we are about to receive and the fate of those who fall away. Beginning with Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, we have much to say about this, Christ being of the order of Melchizedek, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So what we have here is we have some of the Hebrew people that have been Christians for years. And by this time, right, they should be teachers, but they still have someone needing to tell them the same things over and over and over again. The elementary principles of the gospel, you know, what is sin, Jesus, the importance of a spiritual diet, of scripture, fellowship, and active ministry. 
One of the things I found in, in my studies, especially sociological studies of our culture and Christians in our contemporary times is there's a great disparity who, of people who recite scripture but they can't recognize good from evil. Rather, they conform scripture to contemporary social constructs and via their own sense of rightness, sell out the word of God in the interest of social acceptance. It's very hard when everyone disagrees with you, when you're labeled things like being a hater, or you don't care about people, or you're just being judgmental. Now, I liken this much to my little grandson who's three years old. Now, he's a blast. He's funny, he's very observant. And I look at him and I go, wow, that's fantastic. But I think in 15 years from now, if he's making the same observations and making the same comments, I'm gonna be kind of concerned. 15 years after that, if he's doing the same thing, I'm going to be very alarmed. Because what's happening is there's something developmentally wrong with him. And we need to understand spiritually that when we recognize this in ourselves and others, and we see this condition in believers who've been Christians for a long time, we are witnessing a condition of impeded development. Now, we have this kind of concept that if, if we just spend enough time being a Christian, if it's been so many years, somehow that's gonna take care of things that, that we struggle with, right? But the truth is age or time alone does not produce maturity. And it's irrational to believe that simply by enough time you're gonna give up your outbursts of anger, your hurts, hangups, and habits, like our group um, works on. It's, you're gonna give up substance abuse, you're gonna give up all these things that you've been trapped in just by coming to church over and over again. On the contrary, these be can become deeper characteristics in our lives over time. It just doesn't vaporize with age. The flesh does not always self-correct. That's why the law cannot bring us into righteousness and Jesus had to die. Yeah, I, I always remember in my mind um, a counseling session I had with a lady who had just come back from her family Thanksgiving. And there was a couple in, um, at their Thanksgiving dinner and they were having kind of like typical marital conflicts, you know, yeah, marriages have conflicts. And uh, it was very, very typical, at least that she was describing them to me. And, and as she was talking about it, um, she, she made the comment, you know, I understand marriage. I've been married four times and I know what works. <laughs> Right? And then there's always that employee that gets passed over. You know, the one that's been there longer. You know, there was a school administrator that went to hire a teacher and bring them into an administrative position. And what happened with that, um, that teacher was they got promoted, they had 11 years of experience, but another teacher who had also applied confronted the administrator and said, why did you pass me over for him? And she said, I've had 21 years of experience. And he looked at her and he said, that's where you're wrong. You've had one year experience 21 times. 
You see, what happened, these Hebrew Christians, they'd just been going through the same lesson services over and over again all the years of their Christian life, but they'd never grown. Instead of moving on and growing, they were just marking time. They were stagnating. They'd settled for knowing about the truth, what it looks like, but never experienced depth in their faith. So Hebrews 5 kind of lets us know what <laughs> immaturity looks like, right? We know what it looks like physically, but this lets us know what it looks like spiritually. The inability to instruct others, the inability to discern good from evil, dependence on favorite teachers, and a lack of change or depth in spiritual perspectives. So we face this inevitable observation. Some mature and they progress and others stagnate. For the mature, we find every day is a journey of faith, a never-ending sense of awareness and understanding. And it's not that that happens through all victory. It happens through suffering. It happens through struggles. It, it, it's learning to trust in him. It's learning to die to yourself. I want you to keep in mind as we continue 14, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. It's not just knowing about the facts, dictating theology or describing biblical accounts. It's by constant use they have trained or disciplined themselves to distinguish good from evil. Paul put it this way in terms of his growth. He said, not that I've already attained this, all this, <laughs> or have already arrived at my goal, maturity. But I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He saw it as a lifelong adventure. And when you start doing that, you come into the believer's rest. You know where you are, you know where you're going, and you know who's going with you. So he moves into Hebrews 6, and the message is very simple. Let's get on with it. Therefore, let us move forward the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Well, this is really built up because now he's going to give us a very, very stern warning. I want you to listen very carefully to what the Spirit is telling you in our preceding verses this morning and try to understand them in terms of who you are and where you're at in your spiritual growth. It's very decisive. It says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of this coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. A very stern warning. It is impossible. Now what does this mean? Well, those who have once been enlightened, their eyes have been opened to their own personal need for forgiveness. The state of the lost world. They are convicted and experience guilt and they understand their susceptibility and their need for a savior. This is what enlightenment is all about. It's about realization understanding. And the next phrase, and have tasted the heavenly gift. Well, what is the heavenly gift? John 3.16 makes it very simple, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
They, they understand what that gift is. They've had a personal encounter with Christ. They have tasted the heavenly gift. Become partakers of the Holy Spirit. See, it's more than just being influenced by the Holy Spirit. They have become companions with the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. That means to enter into the joy, the promises of God, to understand them and to understand their truth and relevance in life. And the powers of the age to come, they've already experienced release and deliverance in their life. Wow. And then? And who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, it's impossible. Why can't they come back? How could they possibly fall away? Well, we can't put everyone in the same category because we understand that there's different stages or different ways that people accept Christ. Some actually have never progressed to an actual spiritual birth. The scripture gives us a glimpse of an embryonic stage of spiritual growth. We know that life begins in the womb. We know that Galatians describe this embryonic stage in the Christian walk. As Paul cites, my little children, I stand in doubt of you. I am travailing in childbirth until Christ be formed in you. They never make it to spiritual birth. They die in the womb. Others, according to this passage, experience life but become an adversary to the truth. They hear the word of God. They receive it with excitement. However, they become dissuaded with the truth. They no longer desire to identify themselves as a follower of Christ and confidently deny Jesus as Lord. In fact, they work against him. They no longer recognize a need to submit to self-death in deference to the Spirit. They reject Jesus and the Spirit. Book of Romans cites, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and God hands them over to degrading lust. If this condition continues, a hardening, blinding process leads to permanent callousness, which if allowed to continue, may lead such a person to drop out of his or her spiritual practice and renounce Jesus. Now, only God knows the true condition of the heart at this time, but if that occurs, the Bible says it's hopeless. They cannot return to repentance. And he continues to tell us why. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those to whom it is farmed receives the blessings of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Why won't God permit them to go on? Why can't they repent? Well, the passage exclaims that they're re-crucifying Christ. They're renouncing the principle of the cross. Paul called them enemies of the cross. Their spiritual awareness dissipates. They shame and devalue the profession they once made. Okay, so people sin. Some people I know have fallen away in that sense where they kind of lose their sense of faith. That's not what this passage is talking about. Why would simply denouncing him lead them to a state of impossibility towards repentance? And the answer is because people in this specific state of falling away no longer recognize sin. 
They no longer recognize it. They no longer will recognize it. You don't even have to worry about the end result because you're going to keep trying to work with them. You're going to keep loving them. And you're gonna, but they won't accept it. They won't do it. And they'll hold out to the very end. How can you repent from something you don't recognize? Romans describes a spiritual struggle in Galatians 5, 17 through 25, where it says the spirit and flesh wrestle. For the believer, this is a sign of life. That's a good thing if you're struggling. For the one who's fallen away, they, they don't recognize sin, nor the validity of the cross, Christ, or the authority of the word of God. In a very symbolic fashion, not a literal fashion, they've taken the mark of the Antichrist. Not only do they approve the immoral anti-biblical acts, but they approve, campaign, and fight for these actions. I want you to look at this video from the American Atheist. Religion is the biggest problem humanity faces. It keeps people in a blinded, stupid state and tells them that it's a good thing. And if you ever question anything that it offers, you're going to burn in hell forever. I've been going to church since I was two years old, so as long as I can remember. I went to a religious school uh, since daycare. I came from a very Catholic family, and my dad was actually my Bible study teacher. I was always the kid in Sunday school that knew all the answers to all the questions. That's just how I grew up, and I never questioned it once. It's interesting, every day you learn about the Bible and read the same stories over and over and over. And it got to a point where I needed to read the whole thing. About two years ago, I really wanted to like finalize my argument for Christ and I wanted the scientific background of it. And I knew I had heard there's historical evidence for Jesus, there's scientific proof that the Bible is real. And I thought to myself, I'm like, I need this information. This is the, the missing piece to my argument. I got a handout Bible from a guy after leaving school and I said, all right, I'm gonna read the whole Bible. I was really confused because the more I looked, I found circular arguments. And then you start realizing how ridiculous what you've been told um, really is. And it just was a circle of nonsense. And then you start thinking, oh, this is Satan, and Satan's making me think all these awful, abysmal thoughts, and I'm going to burn in hell forever. I think I started to whittle things down from there. So it was like, okay, well, I, I reject the idea of hell because it is pretty stupid and awful. Um, and then I went to high school, and I became friends with um, some some gay friends of mine and started to see that some of the other parts of the Bible were probably not very nice either. The summer before my first year of college, I was assigned a book called Brain Rules for my freshman biology class. And this book talked about the evolution of the human mind and the brain and how our ancestors walking on the plains became what we are now. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then I took a step back and I was like, wait a minute, did I just say that evolution, the theory that I've been told to is evil and scientists are completely evil, you know, am I saying that evolution is true? And they want you to fear. To so let's examine the logic of the serpent, right? We do that in Genesis, right? What the evil one tells someone. You know, you look at, look at what they're saying. You look at what they're being influenced by. Does it concern you? I'm hoping it does. I'm hoping it concerns you, because you know why? It began in the 1960s in our universities, 
And that's when it started, and people were alarmed, but it only happened in a few universities. Soon, like, like an infectious disease, it became more and more and more intense. And then, right around 2006, it entered our high schools. And it became very, very hard for believers to be Christians at our local high schools. Youth groups started dwindling. Later on, middle schools followed. And it became hard for these poor people to understand who Jesus was. Lately, it's entered our elementary schools as far as kindergarten and preschool. And if you don't think I'm right about that, look at your school curriculum. They make your children believe that they're right and they're wrong. So let's examine their logic, shall we? Stories that don't make sense. The Bible has stories that don't make sense. Well, if you can make sense out of the work of God, then it might not be the work of God, right? Um, but, but really, look at their answers. I mean, why don't they see when they look out over their society, over their culture, that their answers haven't worked? Using drugs, looting, riots, smoking, suicide, human trafficking, chemical warfare, that all makes sense? And why is it that these converted agents of deceit only look at the Bible? They don't pick out Islam or any of the other supposed truths that follow religion. And you, you brilliant sophomore scholars, who was historic Jesus anyway? You know, you attempt to, to portray that the whole thing is a lie. You tried to deny the facts so you don't have to believe and you can just toss it out and do what you want to do. Here's another warning. There will come a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that little video isn't gonna help you. I like this one. I learned that there were some other things in the Bible that wasn't nice. What is nice, right? Is gang violence nice? Domestic violence? Theft? Killing innocent people? Mutilating our children? That's nice? If nice is pleasing or always comfortable, any parent would not be nice when they refused their child candy or kept them from unhealthy, although attractive experiences. How many of our laws that we have on our books are nice? Anything that tells us we can't do what we want to do. They say we have ridiculous beliefs. Really? How about evolution, right? They believe in evolution. This is a theory that doesn't show a change in species, but more of an adaptation to environment. Man can share 98 similarity of DNA with a chimpanzee, yet that DNA acts differently and cannot reproduce between the species. Therefore, it doesn't have the same DNA as an ape or chimpanzee. The two species are so far apart, they cannot have successful fertilization and reproduction. Now, that doesn't mean they aren't trying. They're holding out for a hybrid. And like I said earlier, doing away with religion doesn't do away with morality, just because you don't like it. 
There will always be right and wrong. Look at the number of laws we have on our books. They're wrestling with 10 commandments. Is abortion, sex reassignment surgery, believing that this changes a girl to a boy or a boy to a girl, not ridiculous? I had a um, discussion with a chemical engineer who tried to convince me that if we just gave prepubescent children hormones, that would eventually change the DNA from a boy to a girl or a girl to a boy. Now, if you know anything about DNA, you know that's ridiculous. That's the goal. There's one that I didn't share with you, but it one that goes a little later on in the video. It says, America is immersed in religion and is responsible for the horrible conflicts in the world. In other words, religion has led us into depravity. Well, you know, <laughs> that couldn't be farther from the truth. If anything, the distancing from religion has led to more drugs, crimes, and immorality. They say the people who represent faith, um, if you are a faithful man, you should be ashamed. That's what it says later on. That this faith is dangerous. The churches are dangerous. Really? Am I dangerous? Look around this room. Who's the dangerous one? We purport grace. We define love. We work towards forgiveness. We work towards helping people overcome. We look towards a God who loves us and gives us a way out of this mess. We support those who are starving, refugees in the Middle East, and we stand for the life of the unborn child. We stand with refugees, victims of disasters, orphans, and those who have been discriminated against. So we need to understand as we're looking at this, this incredible warning that only the high priest can determine who cannot be returned. Just like it's only the high priest that can open the scroll. It's only the high priest that can determine the wheat from the chaff or the sheep from the goats. God knows when someone's gone too far and it's not our job and it's not our job to tell him his job. If God permits, we will move on. So he goes in here and it's like, where do we go from here? And he, he changes the whole tone. It becomes very positive, very comforting. Hebrews 6, 9 through 10, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help him. That is a very comforting, very comforting outlook because if you're here today, he's talking to you right now. If, if you are here today and you are struggling with something, if you are looking um, with some sort of fleshly weakness or you, you need help because you're, you're experiencing some doubts or some, some struggles in your belief, that's a good sign. It means that you're wrestling. That's not what he described earlier on in this passage. If you're a believer, you are saved. No sin, no outside force, no circumstance brought upon you can separate you from the love of God. You pursue the Lord through faith and obedience. These are the indicators of the better things that are spoken about in this passage. 
Rather, we have, in the previous passage, been describing a person who makes a decision to reject Jesus, is not convicted of truth, and will not repent. And the warning is that we make sure that we are continuing to grow, that we do not become stagnant. The high priest separates the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, determines whose name is written in the book of life. God determines where we're at. We can trust him with that. But we are responsible to pursue growth, challenge our eating, proper spiritual diet, participate in honest self-reflection, recognize stagnation in ourselves and others, because that is the practice of faith. He moves on in 11 through 12. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. So that's his goal, is that we show diligence in our relationship with him and in our growth to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. He states to the very end. We don't stop. We continue to pursue. He wants us to be fully realized. Paul stated that his prayer was for those to know the height, width, breadth, depth of the love of God. And let me just tell you, you're not gonna know that completely in this lifetime, but you can experience it more and more and more. Paul stated the goal was to know him. We need to recognize who's responsible. And we need to understand that it's our choice to benefit from the word of God, right or wrong. If that were not true, he would not be talking to us about drinking milk and drinking solid food. By submitting to the Holy Spirit, by recognizing and benefiting from the word of God, this begins a gradual progression in knowing God that must be seen to the end. Show, demonstrate the same diligent effort to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Partial Realization is missing out on the whole. It impedes spiritual development and threatens spiritual birth and maturity. So this morning, this scripture is here to put us in check, to find out where we're at. Are you pursuing growth? Where are you at in your maturation process? Are you growing or flailing? Are you able to recognize stagnation in others and help encourage others it to realization in Christ. Is it time for you to start teaching others? Listen, if you're struggling, if you really want to take steps forward, we have an awesome men's group on Monday night, and we have women's groups. We have great opportunities for you to build relationships and be challenged and to understand the Word of God. I want to encourage you to jump in on it. We can help you do that. What a powerful stern warning. What a great confidence. And what an unbelievable truth. I want to close with Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Join me in prayer, please. Father, thank you so much for loving us and, and for warning us Father, help us to take these warnings, not only for ourselves, but also for others. When we see people there in an impeded development, Father, that you would use us to help them move along 
And Father, I, I just really pray for those people who are stuck and, and they're kind of struggling with doubts or maybe they are not grasping your word like they once did, Father, that there would be a wake-up call that would happen. And Father, that we could help. Um, as the scripture says, those who are spiritual, help someone back to repentance, that we can do that so that we don't fall into temptation ourselves. Father, we let you be our high priest. We let you make the judge. We entrust that to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not letting anything separate us from that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.